Welcome to episode 199 of the first 40 miles. If you're new to backpacking, or if you're hopelessly in love with someone who wants you to love backpacking, then this podcast is for you. We'll talk about the essentials, how to lighten your load, and how to make the most of your time on the trail. I'm your host, Heather Legler. And I'm Josh Legler. And this is The First 40 Miles. Today on The First 40 Miles, I can't help but get a little nostalgic when September rolls around. This week marks the four-year anniversary of our first 40 miles, the trip that Josh and I took together with friends around Mount Hood. And even though we've been backpacking for a few years, there are still things that take us by surprise. Next, for today's Summit Gear Review, a headlamp that doubles as a flashlight and triples as a stand-up torch. Then we'll share a hack that will make your next trip to the bathroom rock. And we'll leave you with a little trail wisdom that will help you understand your human connection with nature. All this, and that's about it. Today on the first 40 miles. So I've been reflecting recently on my first real backpacking trip, the one that we took together around Mount Hood. Now that I've had some time to digest it, you know, think back on some key moments on that backpacking trip, I realized, first of all, I was in way over my head. (laughs) That was a crazy first backpacking trip. There were some real risks on that trip that uh, I, I didn't even realize were real risks because everyone around me seemed pretty confident and pretty knowledgeable. And I was basically just going along for the ride and putting one foot in front of the other and kind of relying on their expertise. And I'm really grateful that I was invited on that trip, uh, even though I was pretty green. What were some of those risks that you now see in hindsight that maybe you didn't fully grasp at the time? Oh, definitely the river crossings. Okay. There were a lot of river crossings, just, you know, tons of glaciers on this massive dormant volcano. And the rivers in the morning were passable, crossable, peaceful little rivers. But by afternoon or by late day, they were raging torrents that covered up any kind of little stepping rock that you could find. So you had to find the big rocks to jump over to and somehow make it over to the other side. But we had quite a few river crossings and those carry real risks. We saw signs by many of those crossings, uh, the ones that talked about how someone had recently died trying to cross a river. And uh, I think her family, in reaction to that, had put up these signs to help encourage safety at the river crossings. But if you've never been on a backpacking trip before, then you never really know, like, how much should I get out of that sign compared to the sign that I also see at the trailhead that warns me about the dangers of bears or ticks or cougars? There's so many risks out there. And when it's your first trip, you don't know which one is a risk that's unique to that trip versus the risks that you just kind of face on every trip. And the river crossings certainly were unique to that trip. We've never taken a trip that had such dangerous river crossings as that one. The only one I can think of that even comes close was when we did the Rogue River during spring break with our family, and it had just rained like that day. And there were some little waterfalls that came over the trail that had turned into 
gushing torrents of water. And when we turned around two days later and packed back out, they were back to just little trickles of water again. Uh, but they were dangerous just for those few hours when we encountered them. But other than that, uh, every river or stream crossing we've done has been really tame compared to what we experienced around Mount Hood. And another thing I've been reflecting about is just how maybe the act of backpacking hasn't gotten any easier. You're still putting in the miles and you still feel those same aches and twinges and hot spots. But now I know what to expect. And so I'm not so surprised or so anxious or so worried. You know, those things that may have really concerned me in the beginning aren't as big of a concern now. I don't freak out. Well, I do freak out a little when I get a blister because I know it's going to last for a long time. But, you know, I, I guess I know how to react or how to respond in a way that's helpful now. And I think we've become more experimental. Uh, when we first got ready for the Mount Hood trip, I remember that it was really important to me to know exactly what everyone else was carrying, how much it weighed, uh, what they were wearing, and I wanted to make sure that I matched them because they were the experienced backpackers and I was the one that hadn't done it for a couple decades. Technology had changed. And, and so I wanted to know, oh, everyone else is carrying a 40 to 45 pound pack. Okay, that's what I should be carrying. Everyone else is wearing this type of clothing. That's what I should wear. They're sleeping in tents. That's what I should sleep in. 20 degree bag. That's what I should have. Uh, and now... I think we are much more experimental because we've done all that. And so now we start playing around and saying, hmm, I never used this on a trip, so I'm going to ditch it. <laughs> I don't need it anymore. We're comfortable now sleeping without a tent or in a hammock or under a tarp. Lots of different sleeping options that we've become comfortable with because we've experimented. And it's taken four years of experimentation. It's not something where, you know, we were comfortable with it at first. We had to ease into all of these different ideas. And, you know, I remember on that first backpacking trip around Mount Hood, one of our friends decided to cowboy camp. Just brought a tarp and laid out on the tarp. And I thought, how can he do that? I mean, he's going to wake up in the middle of the night with mice in his sleeping bag and spiders crawling across his face. He's just, that's too hardcore. I would never do that. And yet, <laughs> <laughs> we've done it. Four years later, we've kind of warmed up to the idea and it's something we've done now. And it wasn't scary and I didn't wake up with mice in my sleeping bag. I, no spiders in my ears. It was just not as scary as I thought it was, but I had to kind of warm up to the idea. It took a while to get there. Something else I've been reflecting on recently is every time we go out backpacking, at some point on the trip, Josh turns to me and says, thanks so much for coming out here. And I think that's kind of interesting because it's not like I'm doing him a favor. Like, I enjoy backpacking. I enjoy being out there. But kind of like with the cowboy camping thing, it was an idea I had to warm up to. And when the time was right, I just jumped right into it. And here we are backpacking together. And it's so fun. We smell bad on the trip, but we smell bad together. So <laughs> it's very, it's very fun to be able to, to do this uh, together and as a family and with friends. It's funny, there's still a point on most trips, uh, <laughs> it, you know, any trip that's more than just a quick overnighter, mm -hmm. there's some point on the trip that is uh, uncomfortable, that's a, kind of a low point. It may be the same point for me and you, or it may be 
at different times that each of us have that low point. And I have that thought cross my mind. Is this Heather's last trip? Is this where <laughs> she just kind of ends this backpacking thing and says, yeah, what, what was I thinking? <laughs> what was I thinking? This really is not fun. Why am I doing this? And why would I ever go out on a backpacking trip again? There's that low moment on most trips, I think, where I have that little thought. And the funny thing is then driving home from the trip, you know, when you're in the van and you're all comfortable again <laughs> and our whole family is talking about the next trip. <laughs> and it's just so funny. Uh, yeah, we're going to go out on another trip. Another thing that I've been reflecting on is that every single trip, there are things that continue to surprise us about backpacking. And you'd think after doing it now for a few years and having some good solid trips under our belt, you'd think we wouldn't be surprised anymore. But for today's top five list, we will be talking about the top five things that continue to surprise us, catch us off guard every single time about backpacking. And the number one thing that continues to surprise us about backpacking is that we learn something new every single time. Doesn't matter the length of the trip or the miles, being outside just opens doors in your mind. I think it's something about maybe not being as distracted outside as you are at home, which is kind of funny because while you're hiking or backpacking, you may be super focused or concentrated on what you're doing, but it's this different kind of focus that allows you to create connections in your brain. Like you can have these deep, long thoughts while you're trying to figure out where to put your foot or how to breathe as you're going uphill. And so you have these moments of personal discovery where you can work out these um, problems in your mind, either personal problems or questions that you have about things or, you know, work issues or just whatever it is that you're kind of mulling over in your mind. Those things kind of end up getting worked out on the trail. If you have a long day of hiking ahead of you, you may think, how am I going to mentally occupy myself through this entire day of hiking? Sure, one foot in front of the other, that's easy. There's not much to think about. And like, what am I possibly going to think about for the next eight hours? And then it happens. Your mind gets to clear itself. You get to reprocess things that have maybe been building up or lingering or whatever within your mind for months, uh, maybe even years, you just get to process that stuff and clean things out. I, it's just kind of this cleansing for my mind as I just spend a day putting one foot in front of the other. Backpacking trips are where I come up with a lot of new ideas too. I work through backpack hacks or I try and figure out solutions to problems that I have while backpacking. So backpacking trips end up being a little bit like a lab for me where I can test out the things that I'm thinking about. The number two thing that continues to surprise us about backpacking is that we still cannot gauge the length of one mile. It seems easy. Look at a standard track four times around the track. That's a mile that makes a mile feel and sound really short compared to our actual experience of a mile. Our family backpacking spot, that's a mile and a quarter for that trail. It feels like more. It really does. It's just so hard for us to visualize what the distance of a mile is. Even as we've looked, you know, like off of a high ridge area and you can see across uh, for an extended distance, 
And, and maybe you know from the map that your campsite is over there five miles away. I just can't conceptualize that as being five miles versus one mile versus 10 miles. And one of the tricky things is that the first mile of the day feels a lot shorter than the last mile of the day. So even as you go throughout your day, the miles seem to get longer. Yeah, the best gauge we've come up with is that a mile is 30 minutes. And if we do the mile in less than 30 minutes, then we're like, woohoo, oh, that was cool. Wow, that was fast. <laughs> That's about our best gauge. Like, oh, okay, you know, we've gone about 30 minutes. We've probably done about a mile. Yeah, and a little mind game, I guess, I came up with for myself is that one pace, so that's like two steps, is about five feet, and a mile is about 5,000 feet. And so for every hundred paces that I take, it's about a tenth of a mile. So during some pretty rough stretches on a recent backpacking trip, that's how I ended up counting it. I would take 100 paces or 200 steps and say, okay, that's a tenth of a mile. I get to eat one peanut M&M now. <laughs> that was kind of how I got through that section. So yeah, gauging a mile is just so tricky. And I know through hikers, they can do a lot more. They're doing like three miles an hour, maybe even four. They are just cruising. And then on harder sections of trail, you might be doing less than a mile an hour. So Two miles an hour, we feel, is kind of the best, you know, if you're on a good trail and you're feeling good, that's kind of where most people kind of end up pacing themselves. So that means 30 minutes to a mile. And the number three thing that continues to surprise us about backpacking is that pain and suffering is kind of fun. <laughs> Maybe it's not like gloriously fun in the moment. I think it's called type two fun. Yeah. But afterwards, it's empowering to look back and say, wow, I did that. I can do hard things. I smelled bad. I was sweaty. I was uncomfortable. I had a blister. But look at me now. I can't believe how many times that has happened to us. Like I said in our opening, there's that low point where I think, yeah, this is Heather's last trip. There's no <laughs> way she's ever going to want to do this again. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I have those low points too. Like, ooh, my knee has started hurting and I still have 10 miles to go. I can't do this. I just can't. But I'll do one more step. That's what you end up doing. You do one more step and one more step and one more step. And it's so strange that we go through those times and then are like, okay, what's our next trip? This was amazing. That was like the most incredible trip ever. We got to do our next trip. Well, you know, I was just thinking back. We took a trip recently. It was a business trip for Josh, and there was an opportunity on that trip to go to a regional amusement park type thing, you know, had a few activities and rides. And uh, so we went there and spent about two hours there, and then everyone was kind of done. And I thought that was kind of interesting compared to backpacking trips where we can spend, you know, five, six maybe more hours a day hiking and it's painful. It's not like you're getting a thrill a minute and yet the kids want to do it again. And then when you compare it with that kind of thrill a minute amusement park experience, we tapped it out and we probably won't do it again because 
there's only so much thrill you can get out of doing the same rides over and over. So I think it's interesting that the pain and suffering ends up being kind of more fun than something that's meant to be fun, like the amusement park. The number four thing that continues to surprise us about backpacking is that a 15-mile hike is not five miles times three. So you have your first five miles and your second five miles and your third five miles. And each of those requires a different mental capacity and physical capacity to get through them. You would think, oh, if I'm doing five miles, then I can do 15 miles. It's kind of the same thing. You just do five miles over and then over again. But uh, no, this is something that has continued to surprise me about backpacking. And that is that I think I overestimate my abilities. In a funny sort of way, you overestimate your abilities. And yet, as we'll talk about in a moment, at some point on the trip, you end up underestimating your abilities and you end up being able to do it. But And, and the, the exact numbers may be different for different people. But for us currently, in our based on our current experience, five miles is like... Oh, cool. Two and a half hours that we can knock that out in a morning or knock it out in an afternoon between lunch and dinner with uh, extra time to stop along the way. That's easy. And 10 miles, you'd think is just, oh, that times two. Easy. Um, But it's a little more than five times two. And then we've really found recently that 15 miles, if you're trying to do 15 in a day, that's more than three times five. It's, It's probably equivalent to doing another 10 you know, that last five miles. And I think we have a couple reasons for it. One, of course, is you simply get more fatigued throughout the day. So the later miles are the harder miles. But there also seems to be a psychological effect. Oh, we're going to knock out five miles in the morning, another five in the early afternoon, but we're still going to need another two and a half to three hours after that. That means dinner's going to be late. We're going to get in right before sunset at 7 p.m., And some of these psychological effects really start to add up. And, you know, after you've done five miles in the morning, you're like, oh, that was cool. Ooh, we're only a third of the way done. Oh, And by the time you get to the eight mile mark, you're like, wow, it's been a long day. Uh, (laughs) I'm ready to stop. (laughs) We're only halfway there. Yeah. Look back where we came from. We have that far yet to go ahead of us. It can get really discouraging. So, you know, again, the numbers, the precise numbers may be different for different people. It might be Two miles is easy, four is quite a bit tougher, and six is really hard. And for a through hiker, maybe it's 10, 20, and 30. 30 is the really hard one. And the number five thing that continues to surprise us about backpacking is that we have reserve even when we've hit that final mile and we can't go one more step. The truth is that you can always take one more step. And you'll probably end up setting up your tent. You'll find a place to use the bathroom, probably throw together some dinner, and you'll be able to do more than you thought you could. Even on those long, long days when you know you have more miles to go and you really do feel like you can't take one more step, there's this reserve that's inside of you that makes it so you can take one more step. And there are some things that you can do to kind of psychologically fill your reserves or physically fill your reserves, you know, taking those breaks, taking off your pack, drinking some water, 
making sure your blood sugar is balanced and that you have enough food inside of you, making sure you're warm enough or cool enough. Those things can go a long way to fill your reserve. But even if you feel like you've been tapped out 100%, it's really encouraging to know that there is something inside of you and that you are never 100% depleted. I noticed this on a backpacking trip that we took with our boys. I ended the day feeling pretty depleted. So I crawled into my sleeping bag and was not planning on getting out until 7 a.m. the next morning. My feet were so sore. My muscles were sore. The temperature was dropping because the wind had picked up and I was just ready to shut down for the night. Then I noticed that my boys hadn't hung their food. And so I was like, oh, don't forget to hang your food. And I could tell by their response that they were going to hang their food, but that they were feeling as depleted as I was. And I had some compassion for them. And that compassion actually kind of tapped into my reserve. And I got up and I grabbed their food bags and quickly found a branch to hang them on and came back to two very grateful boys. If you know anything about teenage boys, they're not very expressive. But after I hung their food, my teenage boys were very expressive. For teenage boys, I could tell that they were grateful that I had hung their food because they just crashed and fell asleep after that. We tend to think that the reserve gives us that extra 10 or 20% that we need. But that's wrong. The reserve gives us, on some days, the extra 80 or 90% that we need. Sometimes that initial energy is gone in the first mile or two. It happens to me. The easy energy is in the morning, the first half hour, maybe hour, like, oh, this is great. This is easy. I can do this all day. And that easy energy really doesn't last very long, at least not for me. And then I start to feel tired. And then I start to notice that I do have spots on me that ache and that I don't feel quite so great like I did an hour ago. And I have to start tapping into those reserves. And if that's a 15-mile day, I've only done two miles, you know, I've got the other 80% left to go. And I have really surprised myself that my reserves have been more, way more than I thought they were. They've been more than that initial energy that I had. And maybe the number six thing that continues to surprise us about backpacking is that we keep going out <laughs> and we keep going with our kids and getting dirty and coming back with wet gear or blisters or sore knees or whatever it is. It's, why do we do it? Why, what are we doing? <laughs> I don't know. It's great. I don't know why we do this. If this is the first episode of the first 40 miles that you've ever listened to, then you're thinking one of two things. Either I'm never going to go backpacking. These people are crazy. They don't even like it. Why would I go? <laughs> the second is, this is so mysterious. They've just told me all the horrible things about backpacking. And then they've, in the same breath, told me that they keep doing it. There must be something to it. I've got to find out what the mystery is. I'm yeah. going backpacking. <laughs> I hope people stick around to find out what the mystery is. For today's Summit Gear Review, we'll be reviewing the Phoenix HL10 headlamp and flashlight and torch. Mostly it's a headlamp, that's how I used it, but it can also pop off and you can use the little light as a little flashlight. You can also stand it up on its end and use it just kind of as a torch. 
So for structure, it is a headlamp with a stretchy headband, which I love because it's super comfortable. And it's about three fourths of an inch wide. The flashlight itself is an aluminum body flashlight that's attached to a plastic holder. So if you want to, you can pop that light off and use it independently from the headband. For utility, to turn on this flashlight, you push and hold the button for about half a second, which is great because it means it probably won't get turned on accidentally in your pack. You really do have to hold it down and wait for it to turn on. So it can't just be bumped on. The Phoenix HL10 headlamp has three different settings. There's low, medium, and high. Low can run for 24 hours on a battery at four lumens, and you have visibility of about six meters. Then medium can run for two hours and 30 minutes with a visibility of about 19 meters. That's 30 lumens. And then on high, you have about 40 minutes uh, with a visibility of 30 meters at 70 lumens. I only use this headlamp on low because four lumens is more than enough if you're just bumming around camp and doing your little cross stitch in camp or whatever. That's pretty much all you need to do camp chores. If you're going to be doing night hiking though, medium to high is probably a better option. Unless you have moonlight, then you could probably leave it on low and have a visibility of six meters. That should be enough. The nice thing about this headlamp is it stays on the setting that you left it at. So if you turned it off and it was on high, next time you turn it on, it will be on high. You don't have to click through all three settings in order to get to the one that you want. I think that's fantastic because we always use ours on low, like you said. And there's a lot of headlamps that start on high and you have to cycle down to low. And this one, hey, if you last used it on low, next time you turn it on, it's going to be on low. And that's basically the setting that we always use. There'd have to be some rare case where we need more power than just low. For mass, the Phoenix HL10 headlamp weighs 1.2 ounces without the battery. With a AAA battery, it weighs 1.6 ounces, but if you are cutting the grams, a lithium battery weighs 0.25 ounces. For maintenance, the Phoenix HL10 headlamp is rated at IPX6, which means that you can use it in the rain because it has been tested with powerful water jets being forced at it, which never happens in nature. But yeah, you should be fine hiking with this in the rain. And like we said, it uses one AAA battery, which are super cheap and really lightweight. So you should probably stash an extra one in your 10 essentials. For investment, this headlamp is $26.95. And for trial, even at this headlamp's lowest setting, it is sufficiently bright. Um, it has a little feature on it that's kind of cool. You twist this little plastic cover that's over the light and it either focuses the light or it disperses the light. So you have some lighting options. And this is especially good if you are using it for night hiking and you want that beam on the trail or say you're using it to read at night and you don't need a beam on the page. You just need kind of that glow. Then you can disperse the light and have it kind of just gently illuminate your map or the book that you're reading. I also like how the headlamp curves to the shape of your head. So it has the elastic all around it, but the part that you clip the flashlight into, that part is nicely curved to the shape of your head and very comfortable. 
The band on this headlamp is elastic, but it's also adjustable, so you can cinch it down nice and tight, and it uses kind of a one of those push-button toggle things to adjust, so it's not just a buckle. And then I love that this headlamp is super lightweight, 1.6 ounces with the battery, and you have all of these lighting options. I think low is the best because you get 24 hours of usage as opposed to medium and high, which range from 40 minutes to about two and a half hours. It's less expensive than a lot of the other headlamps out there, and it's comfortable. So this is one of those rare pieces of gear that actually has all three. You know, we always say, Pick two out of the three, price, weight, and comfort, or price, weight, and durability. I would say this has all three or all four of those features. The Phoenix HL10 is a solid piece of backpacking gear. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, this is an award-winning flashlight. It's lightweight, comfortable, durable, and easy to use. We'll have all the details for the Phoenix HL10 headlamp in today's show notes at thefirst40miles.com slash 199. For today's backpack hack of the week, a no-dig cat hole. That's right. A couple episodes ago, we talked about the after-the-fact cat hole, where you just do your business, then you dig the cat hole and scoot everything into the hole and cover it up. Uh, and that does make things a bit easier. No aiming involved. That's great. There's still the problem. Sometimes the forest soil looks so soft to me until I start digging. I get down about two inches and I've gotten through the soft stuff and I start getting into roots and rocks. And, you know, if I'm using just a stick, it's almost impossible for me to get down beyond three or four inches below that surface. It gets really tough. And if you have a nice trowel, maybe you can cut through the roots and dig through the rocks and finally get that six to eight inches of depth that you're supposed to have. But here's another option. To find the perfect cat hole that nature's already made for you, all you need to do is lift up a rock that's about six to eight inches, and below it will leave a hole that is the perfect size for all of your bathroom needs. No digging required. Just don't forget to put down the seat when you're finished. And one of the cool things about this no dig cat hole is that when you put that rock back exactly where you found it, it's practically leave no trace because the rock fits right back into nature, just like a puzzle piece. Nice. Next time I go out, I'm looking for a rock because that's going to be way easier than digging. Yeah, and one of the nice things about what happens when you put back the rock, it disperses what you put <laughs> into the hole perfectly into the soil. It incorporates it into nature. Nice. And we'll leave you today with a little trail wisdom from our good friend on the trail, Ernest Becker. He said... When we understand that man is the only animal who must create meaning, who must open a wedge into neutral nature, we already understand the essence of love. Love is the problem of an animal who must find life, create dialogue with nature in order to experience his own being. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you're looking for fun backpacking books and merch, check out thefirst40miles.com slash shop. We'll see you next time on The First 40 Miles.
Can you do me a favor and Google how much a battery weighs? battery weighs? How many point ounces? Thank you for making the problem. Now let me give you the solution. <laughs>